This podcast is proudly sponsored by Virtuous. Now, giving is a very deeply personal thing, and they believe that your fundraising should be too. This is actually something we talk about a lot on this very podcast in terms of how can we grow, improve, and optimize giving and generosity. So traditional impersonal fundraising tactics often alienate donors and create a distance between them and the impact that they want to have. Virtuous is the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships with all of their donors. And I have to say, I think it's a great product. I've referred multiple nonprofits and charities over there in the past and continue to do so in the future because I believe in the people and the product and I just think it's a really good modern piece of fundraising focused software. So I recommend you check it out. And if you are interested in finding out more, you can go to virtuous.org slash generosity. That is virtuous, V-I-R-T-U-O-U-S dot org slash generosity. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I am your host, Brady Josephson, and today we are chatting with Aubrey Bergauer from Changing the Narrative. We talk about fundraising and innovation from the arts space, and specifically symphonies and orchestras, a space that Aubrey knows very well. She's been called the Steve Jobs of classical music. It's pretty Uh, awesome way to be described. But we talk about different experiments and tests that she's ran with nonprofits in that space, but more so how do we use like content marketing and testing and innovation for all nonprofits, not just arts organizations. And then we talk about how we can grow and improve generosity, which is the whole purpose of this podcast and why hopefully you are listening. So that's in store. She's incredibly smart, incredibly engaging. I know you'll enjoy it. And thank you for listening. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. I said, Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Welcome to the freak show, here we go. It's just another freak show, here we go. Hi, Aubrey. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. So you've been called the Steve Jobs of classical music, which may be the absolute coolest descriptor I've ever seen. And I should note, you didn't give yourself that moniker. Someone else (laughs) gave you that moniker, but it's pretty cool. Uh, Is it true? Where does the Steve Jobs side come from? And then more so, like, how'd you get into classical music? Thank you for saying that. I... I think that is one of the highest compliments I've ever received to be compared to Steve Jobs. I mean, wow. So where does that come from? I believe the writer who wrote that about me, this was in the observer. I I believe it was about the idea that I take so much inspiration from outside the arts, a lot of Mm. inspiration from Silicon Valley. I'm based in San Francisco. So that makes some sense. And I just, uh, I think that the arts and culture industry can be so insular to Mm. a fault. And so Mm. I I have learned so much by looking at what works for other sectors, both nonprofit and for-profit and and really taking that inspiration. So I think that that's where that comes from (laughs) and this idea. And I'm I'm a millennial. I'm a a geriatric millennial. If anybody saw that article recently, (laughs) an old millennial, basically. So I like this idea of tech influencing and helping us, not harming Mm -hmm. us and what we do. All of that combined, I think is where that comes from. (laughs) Okay, cool. Uh, And what about classical music? Is this something that, you know, you've had a passion and interest in since you were young? Like, how did you make your way into this, this area or this niche of the world? 
Yeah, most people do not come to arts management until well into their professional career. I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but as a general statement, a lot of people in arts administration were an artist growing up or performer, trained to be a performer or artist of some kind. And then uh, along the way, as they really entered their career and decided to sort of veer into this offstage mm. role. And I'm not like that though. I decided <laughs> in high school that this is what I wanted to do. Wow. And the very fast story is I grew up in Houston. I played in the Houston Youth Symphony. And I remember the orchestra going through an executive director change and <laughs> knowing very little about what that meant, but just like seeing a new person being introduced, having this aha moment that, oh, there is a job managing this entire operation. That's what I want to do. So hmm. from there, um, it went to college with degrees in music performance as well as business, knowing that this is the path I wanted to take. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. You don't, I mean, even, even like the nonprofit space more generally, you don't often get, you know, such a long kind of runway of this is what I want to do. So that's right. pretty, pretty unique. That's cool. Cool. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk is, is obviously some of that, you know, associative learning from outside the space, which obviously, you know, we value in testing and innovation. You actually launched the Center for Innovation Leadership uh, at the San Francisco, San Francisco Conservatory of Music. Uh, what is that? It sounds cool, but like, what is it functionally and why did you want to launch it? Yeah, that is a great question coming on the heels of what I just said, actually, because mm -hmm because there is such a lack of training for mm. arts management, arts administration, arts leadership. Mm. And I am a firm believer that you can be a leader no matter your role or level of seniority. So I feel very passionate about that. And that's a um, sort of a reckoning in general happening with not just arts and culture, but nonprofits and even for-profits more broadly. How do we break this very hierarchical culture that so many of us in our organizations have embraced mm -hmm. forever? And, and empower leaders of all types within. So the Center for Innovative Leadership, uh, I was brought on by the conservatory in the fall of 2019 to start planning this, uh, really addressing this need. There Again, these people, so many of us, we come to arts administration with, with very little training. Mm. And I have said for years now, our offstage training and offstage talent needs to match our onstage talent. Mm. We have e exceptionally high quality musicians mm. and classical music and the supply of exceptionally qual high quality, exceptionally talented musicians is very mm. high. That is not the case with our offstage talent. So right. put all that together, the need for training is so mm. great. And so when the conservatory called, I said, yes, I definitely want to help lead this, this um, center. Cool. Well, um, so when you talk about like innovation for nonprofits and arts organizations in particular, like you kind of mentioned lack of training, but maybe what's some of like the, the innovation side, because innovation and training don't always go hand in hand. I mean, they're kind of linked, but, you know, so right. there's like the training, how do we up our games? But can you talk a little bit more to maybe like the, the innovation side? What are some issues that you're trying to solve by focusing on innovation? Mm -hmm. What's interesting to me is I, I, I get described as innovative a lot, which is another wonderful compliment. I love that. I love embracing new ideas. I love change. That's my whole brand is changing the narrative. So all of that really resonates. But also to self-describe, I would say I am more intent on iteration mm -hmm. and I am a huge believer in iteration and let's 
measure. So let's do a pilot project. Let's measure it. Let's test it, whether that's A-B tested or like I said, a pilot project. Let's do something once or twice or three months or however we're going to put those parameters around the test Yeah. and then evaluate it and then mm-hmm. decide how do we then iterate, improve, assess, and, and, and do it again. And mm. this cycle of iteration and learning is not often present in arts and culture. And I think by me just being so data-driven in that way, sometimes gets translate, translated to innovative. And, and maybe that's true. You bring in new ideas and new projects, I guess, to a degree that is innovative. But, um, but I, I am drawn more toward iteration. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. So like we're an innovation and optimization kind of shop and those two things are kind of on opposite ends, but they're linked, right? Cause if you just, if you're iterating one iteration, maybe you unlock some, who knows, some crazy finding that you're like, we did not expect that, but isn't that interesting? And maybe that is something that's truly like innovative. Whereas most things are just kind of a better version of what you used to do and you keep getting better and better and better. And that's what a lot of our fundraising focus is on. But there are things when it's like, we just had this in our staff meeting today where we learned something in an AB test Facebook ad where you could basically ask yes, no questions. And we were really struggling for an email opt-in. And we're like, what if we just apply this over here and something we've been testing for months, we applied a concept from, you know, Facebook ads over here. And it's like potentially ground breaking for us in terms of how do you go do email acquisition and we would have never come up with that idea unless you were just constantly testing in another arena right like those things are linked those kind of epiphanies i love because you're right it's usually something that is sort of bubbling there and you start looking at data and asking these questions and these ideas emerge which so describe it as innovative describe it as iterative whatever i i just oh i love it i eat it up yeah. So, so how do you get that kind of in, in the, in the culture and ingrained? Cause I think sometimes people, you know, like, well, we hired a consultant to help us innovate or, you know, we want to be innovative, but they're not iterating or like uh, one person wants to do more innovative things and they can't. So, you know, what are some of the barriers in our organizations or just nonprofits overall that you've found to kind of prevent people and organizations from maybe doing some of those pilots and tests and things like that? I think a big barrier is the way it's always been done. Mm. So uh, systemic, so entrenched to our, our, our organizations. And this is more true, I would say, the larger the organization, the older the organization. So when we're talking mm. about classical music in particular, mm. <laughs> right. our, most, our most established institutions are upwards right. of 100 years old at this point. And yeah. so talk about entrenched. There are a lot of things that are just so (laughs) deeply ingrained. And so that is by far in my mind, the biggest Mm. uh, inhibitor to, to doing things differently. I think Mm. also this does go back to the training. I, because most of our training in this industry is on the job, a lot of it is handed down Mm. um, very just sort of linearly, like this is what you do very prescriptively, I would right. say. And so that is the opposite of this culture you and I are describing right now. Right. And so I think it's like just from the beginning, the way we're brought up from our first jobs in nonprofits. Yeah. And again, especially I know arts and culture best, so that's what I'm talking about. But I, right. you know, it just really, it just breeds us to be um, reticent to change. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's a really good point. I mean, we talk a lot about the sectoral issues, whether it's, you know, the overhead aversion or donor risk and these types, but they do play roles in this. I hadn't thought about kind of the like oral tradition of passing down like this is what you do. 
but that is how we end up with like, well, this is how you do it. And then you just start saying, well, why? And it's like, well, I learned it from so-and-so who learned it from so it's like a game of telephone going back. And it's like, do they know why they did it? You know, if you trace it back far enough, or that was like, that was three decades ago. I don't know if that's still the way, you know, we should be doing it, but I hadn't thought about that, you know, linear progression. Cause for sure, that's how tons of people you're right. Like learn about it and get trained, you know, from, from people. That's, that's really interesting. This episode and podcast are proudly sponsored by Virtuous. Now, you've heard Brady talk about it with our guests before, but I wanted to remind you that giving to a cause is deeply personal, and your fundraising should be too. Unfortunately, today's nonprofits are handcuffed to outdated fundraising models that reserve personal connections for a select few major donors. Instead of creating connection, Traditional impersonal tactics alienate your donors and create distance between the donor and their impact. Virtuous is the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships at scale. Responsive fundraising with Virtuous combines modern technology, data intelligence, and donor-centric giving experiences to foster personalized conversations with every donor. Virtuous is more than just a CRM. They unify fundraising, marketing, and donor development activities, ridding teams of redundant back office tasks, and revealing the insights needed to deliver dynamic campaigns. And all of this happens in one place. You can turn data into deeper donor relationships and grow your fundraising with Virtuous. And to learn more about responsive fundraising with them, you can visit virtuous.org generosity. That's V-I-R-T-U-O-U-S dot org slash generosity. Well, you're great about posting, you know, different ideas and thoughts. And one experiment that I came across on the site that I thought was really interesting, I know it's a little bit older now, but it's it's really interesting, was this kind of like one and done mailing concept. I've seen it a few other times, but I I really liked yours. Can you just walk us through like, what is a one and done mailing concept? Uh, Like, why did you do it? And kind of what did you learn? And what was the result? Well, speaking of taking ideas that have proved successful already, that's exactly what this was. So I came across research from the University of Chicago, John List, I believe is the professor. And uh, this is, you work with not large nonprofits. This is totally his wheelhouse too. And so he was working with large nonprofits, uh, trying to figure out how to keep accounts who had gone cold, trying to reactivate accounts is what I should say, who had totally gone cold. And I think they defined cold as I think three years of no activity. So former donors, then three years of lapse giving. And so basically dead, like that's really basically Yeah. They say (laughs) cold, but basically dead. Yeah. 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 And so the, so the question was, how can we resuscitate? How do we reactivate Mm. these accounts? Okay. So the research, uh, I'm trying to remember in detail, but they had, you know, again, large nonprofits, so massive mailing lists, they were able to test this on. And so they had the control group, which was sort of the normal appeal envelope, all, you know, all the things, response card. And then the experimental group was, uh, I think they put, they put it on the envelope and on the response card, maybe also in the appeal letter, this idea that if you give right now, you can check a box and never, we will never solicit you again. 
And that was the, that was the <laughs> test. And it came back again from a really uh, substantial sample size that sure enough, offering that option to be one and done, give the gift, check the box if you want to opt out forever, uh, produced significantly higher response rates. Because you can imagine the response rates to mailing to a list like that to begin with is abysmal, Mm -hmm. but significantly higher response rates. And very few people actually checked the box to say, never contact me again. So they were able to successfully reactivate some percentage of accounts that felt worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So I remember reading this research, hearing about it and thinking, uh, well, hello, every nonprofit (laughs) I've ever worked with has, of course, that accounts, the same problem. Yeah. So we did this at the California Symphony. I was executive director there at the time. And I can't remember how far back we went. This I would say this is not something I recommend every year for people because it does, it's definitely, it's sort of almost like grocery store loss leader model. Like, you know, you're investing in this mailing knowing that the response rate is lower than a typical, um, mm-hmm. you know, more qualified prospect list. But, uh, but nonetheless, it was something that you could do as a nonprofit every few years or something like that. And sure enough, at the California Symphony, the results really played out matching the broader research. And we had, uh, for us though, we did not AB test it. We decided we were going to go all in. Like normally I wouldn't be mailing to accounts like this anyway. So we thought, okay, all of these dead accounts, let's just give this, this option an offer to, and the response rate. So now we're comparing year over year versus an AB test, but, uh, the response rate over previous years dead accounts, inactive accounts was 17 times higher, if I recall. Mm-hmm. I mean, enough that it was like, who gets, who wants, raise your hand if you want your appeal to perform 17 times better yeah. than the one you did this time last year, right? And so we were like, wow, okay. And of the people, of the people who checked the box, I think it was like one or two, like that was right. it. Like, yeah. I mean, it was just so successful in terms of, yes, we achieved, we wanted reactivating these accounts, new donations, breathing new life into these donors that we so, um, all of us so desperately and deeply need. Um, so yeah, just a real success across the board by those measures. Yeah. I I love that for so many reasons. One, again, like you didn't come up with it. You found someone else who's done it and you just copied it. We do that all the time. Like that's one of the things that people should be doing is just find something that works and go test it for yourself. Uh, it's a problem that every nonprofit has and it, what it gets you out of is just doing the same thing. You know, it's like these people have not given in three years. And so you're like, you know, fall, summer, spring campaign cycle, like it's not working. So doing the same thing and just hoping, you know, maybe this is the, it's just, it's such a low strategy. So like the riskiest thing you can do is actually do the same thing, you know, do something different. So like, there's all these things, like we're doing something different. There's a psychological concept of like autonomy. You're letting them say like, I get to choose now, whether you email, whether you mail me or not. And just when we offer donors autonomy, they often just like that they can use it and they don't actually wield it, but they just like the fact that we offered it to them, you know? Uh, Yes. I totally agree. The psychology. Yes. Uh Love it. Yeah. So it's just such a cool you know, program and story. And you're right. It's probably not something you do like every mailing, you know, you got to phase it in here and there. I mean, we do it a lot on the email side. If someone hasn't opened an email in six months, often it's like, Hey, Mm. we'd love to keep you up to date. We have, we've seen you haven't engaged for six months or like, you know, we'll say some of the last 12 emails. 
um, just click this link and we'll be sure to send you the other stuff. And if you no longer want to see, no worries, you know, thank you so much. Something like that. And a lot of people don't even realize, oh my gosh, I didn't know I haven't been engaging and they'll click the link and they'll re-engage as yeah. opposed to just letting it go and they drift off, you know, it's the same type of thing that we're learning on the digital side is really, yeah. really interesting. I, would say I love the digital email execution of this because it's so, I mean, it's so much less costly than a direct mail piece. So, yes. um, and therefore you can do it more frequently. So yeah, that's great. Love it. And you can, you can automate it too, right? Just set this rule. If yes, user hasn't yeah. opened or clicked email in X days, send Y email. Like it, it's pretty interesting, you know, what we can do. Um, and so we learn a lot actually from direct mail world because human behavior fundamentally doesn't change a ton when they just yeah. move to a screen, you know, they're still humans. It paper screen, the human side of things doesn't change that, that much. So yes. uh, it's pretty interesting what continues to work. Um, speaking of other things that continue to work, the other thing that I, I saw on your site was around content marketing and the arts. And, um, you know, you, you wrote a, a blog post content marketing, what it is and why every orchestra should be doing it. And I thought it was, Brilliant. Uh, I've had the chance to be around a couple arts organizations. And the thing that's always been interesting to me is, like you said, the talent on stage, whether they're like actors or performers or dancers or musicians, like world class, unbelievable, yeah. you know, yeah. and then the, the like storytelling or the, the content that's being produced is often pretty drab you know, so it's like yeah. this, this imbalance. So can all this to say, can you share more about like why you wrote that post and what you do in content marketing and what you've seen in the arts world around, you know, using different forms of content to actually grow, you know, fundraising. Yeah. Your setup is so accurate. You correctly captured what I see in the field all the time. And, and it really speaks to that idea of our onstage talent and our offstage talent, totally not performing at the same level. So, okay. So content marketing, I started learning about this, I don't know, 2016, maybe so several years ago now. And the idea for everybody listening is content marketing is really synonymous with education. And so mm. the idea is when you provide interesting information about a product brand or service that is not explicitly salesy, that actually in turn now talking about consumer behavior, human behavior in 2020, 2021, and going a couple of years back when I started learning about this actually is more effective at driving the conversion, driving the transaction than mm -hmm. the typical old school, more salesy call to action type mm -hmm. approach. Mm -hmm. So to give some examples for this, uh, I mean, in classical music, there's so much educational content. This is where I think is so wonderful for the industry mm -hmm. is that we are sitting on a gold mine of, of education, of interesting information, the story of the composer, the what was happening in the world at the time a piece was composed, whether it's new or old or not. Um, so much to talk about, about the instruments, the performers, the score. So we just really doubled down on this strategy at the California symphony of let's be in the business of education and therefore, uh, drive more sales because of it. So I'll give, a, a case study research study that really inspired me. And then I'll give sort of an actual example that we use at the California symphony. Awesome. So the research study I came across was as uh, they were testing this idea of content marketing and its efficacy is about almond milk. And so this <laughs> company conducting this research study said, okay, we will have again, two groups, the control and the experimental group. 
and they made up a fictitious brand of almond milk. And the reason fictitious is so that none of the participants would have any preconceived notions or loyalty Mm. to said brand. Okay, so fictitious brand. The experimental, uh, no, sorry, first let's start with control group. The control group received a series of short questions. Would you be interested in buying from this brand? Uh, What do you think about the product? You know, those kinds of types Mm -hmm. of questions. The experimental group received those same type of questions, but first they received a very short, like couple of paragraph essay, for lack of a better word, on how almond milk was made. So there Mm -hmm. you go. There's the educational piece. This is how almond milk is made. Couple paragraphs, not very long. Then they were asked those same kind of questions. The experimental group was, I think it was 160 some odd percent more Mm -hmm. likely to say, I want to buy from this brand, more likely to say, I want to continue to buy from this brand. So now we're talking loyalty, not just one transaction and more likely to recommend it to others. I mean, all the things that we want from our our donors, our ticket buyers, uh, you know, and so I remember reading that and thinking, oh my gosh. And then they repeated the study with other fictitious brands, backpacks, I forget whatever else. And right. they they kept reproducing the results. Hmm. So, okay, that was the research that really, uh, even though I had sort of known what content marketing was, really jolted me to awareness of yeah. 161% change. <laughs> that is no joke, Aubrey. So, okay. So at the California Symphony, this became our approach a lot and every performance, every marketing cycle we were in. But one of my favorite stories is we were producing a concert where on the program was a world premiere, which on one hand is exciting, new music world premiere, but also not box office success. People hear new music and are like, ooh, is it scratchy weirdo stuff? Or, you know, (laughs) people don't know what to expect. And so just talk about education, massive work to do there Hmm. to get the audience primed. Also on the program was Bruckner's Symphony Number no. 7, which if you're a classical music fan, some people like Bruckner, a lot of people don't. Definitely not a box office blockbuster like Beethoven's Fifth would be, for example. Okay, so we have this program that basically what I'm saying is very challenging to sell. And the head, we, I had a head of marketing and patron loyalty, and I remember months in advance saying, Teresa, we are really everything that has worked for us in content marketing and everything we've learned about our digital offerings and digital marketing. We have to, we, this is the time, this is the program. We have got to dial it in and make Mm -hmm. sure that we pull out every stop and every, like every play in the playbook. Okay. So she starts going deep into what's interesting. What's interesting about Bruckner seven. Well, it turns out, and you do not have to be a musician or a music major or anything to understand this. You know, the violins, they're basically shredding the whole time, like just Mm -hmm. going nuts with their Mm -hmm. bow and their violin and like, okay, okay, fine. There's that. But the percussionist, on the other hand, there's one note written for the cymbal player. Like this is like a 50 or 55 minute full symphonic work. (laughs) And Bruckner, for whatever reason, wrote one note and it's this one cymbal crash somewhere. I think I forget third movement, maybe, maybe second movement, wherever. And so what she did, she wrote, she did all kinds of stuff, but one uh, blog post as well as social media posts, you know, we could talk about how to right. reproduce content in a moment, but um, basically put up a page of the violin part next to this percussion part. 
the, the whole entire symphony for that percussion part is on one piece of paper because it's literally one note. <laughs> Violins, it's like a sea of black. And you don't really mm -hmm. have to be able to read music to see those two things look different. <laughs> right. So put that up and that post was so widely shared. So uh, it's interesting, I think. I know, yeah. I'm a music geek, of course, but, um, and then we had people, this is where it got very interesting. We ended up selling out the concert. So all it wasn't just that post, all the stops I said that we pulled out really, okay, we mm -hmm. did it, we got there. People were showing up at this concert, waiting for the freaking cymbal crash. <laughs> like, oh, there's Victor standing up at the back. He's holding right. him up. You know, it's like, <laughs> here's the wind up, here's the pitch. Like, I, you know, so <laughs> I just have never, I've never seen anything like that hmm. in my now 16 years in arts management. So that's the example I give of just educational information. And not once did we say, click here to get your tickets, buy yeah. now. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, again, it's, a, it's something that, well, Hey, that's such an awesome story. I want to know the story from, from Bruckner. Like why did you just like have an ex-girlfriend that was a, a symbolist or, you know, yeah, something like, like why do you hate that? Person yeah. Has to sit in the orchestra quiet for 45 <laughs> what, minutes until they're one the, note. Yeah. What's the background I story? I don't know. That's interesting. But, um, and honestly, I mean, it, we're just like getting to know each other, but it's so funny because you know, what you're learning is the same thing that we learn time and time and time and time again, across industries, social service, international public policy, like content, good, interesting content is what every single like human wants. Yes. You know, yeah. some people want to give, but everybody wants to get something useful. You know, people want to learn. I say that all the time. People totally. want to learn. So yeah. yes, I totally, yeah. it's, I, it's an, I just, you know, agree. we talked about yeah. autonomy, which is one of the drivers. Competence is another human driver. And then connectedness is another one. And so for helping people get, be more competent or like learn, we do a lot of online courses and we've seen actually there's a direct correlation between how perceived the content is, how valuable the, the content is per, being perceived. So from a um, petition to an ebook, to an online course, the, the conversion rate goes up in, in lockstep. It's directly correlated to how valuable the content is that they're consuming is perceived. And, and we also see that like we basically built our whole model on donor acquisition now of saying we don't ask for money. We provide content that they download. And then we say, thank you so much. It's on its way. Hey, while you're here, you know, we can only produce this content because of this. And it's just we've tested it all over the board. And it's just so superior to saying, please give us money, you know, which isn't to say you don't do that. Of course, you still do that. But in, especially on the acquisition side, especially on the digital side, it's just it's crazy how much better that approach is. And then I think staff get more excited because like, oh, we're telling these stories about Bruckner, you know, Bruckner and, you know, we're like putting on our journalism hats and what content can we yes, create instead yeah. of just, well, now we have a triple match and this is a 20 X match. You know, it's like, well, where are we going here? We have to find other ways to, you know, connect with people. So I think it's so great that, you know, you're doing that in an art space that, like you said, is not known for being, you know, the most, innovative and digital and all that kind of stuff, which is great, but it's, it's definitely what lines up with us. What are some of the reasons that you've heard or seen for arts organizations or nonprofits that don't do that? Or maybe, you know, their objections to maybe focusing on content or like what we have to ask or like, how do you get around that? What have you seen? Yeah, this is hmm, talk about going back to being entrenched. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think, Oh gosh. There's a, couple, there's a couple reasons for this. So we covered already a lot of people going into arts administration were previously artists themselves. Mm. So therefore that means the understanding of the art 
among administrators, the understanding of the art is quite high. Mm. Then that starts translating to, um, it's like, we forget it's, it's, um, there's a bias for that. Yes. And so again, painting with a very broad brush, but so many arts administrators forget what it's like to be new, forget what Mm. it's like to not know. Yeah. A lot of these, uh, what, what, music majors would consider basic information right. and the re- and the reality is yeah. i say this all the time what percentage of human adults are music majors not high so right. the vast majority of people we are trying to serve don't have that quote unquote mm-hmm. foundational knowledge and i say all the time it's not basic if it was never taught in the first mm-hmm. place and then right. that starts matching up with you know i could go on a whole soapbox of the decline of music education in our public school systems, but the reality right. is grown adults now are a product of that lack of education, which right, makes right. that knowledge to go. So that's one reason, just this very, like this chasm, but that exists between audience members, we are, especially newer audience members, we are trying to attract, trying to engage versus the people producing content. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that's probably the biggest reason. I think the second biggest is uh, slowness to adapt to changes mm. in consumer behavior because, because the arts are a long, especially the, you know, the fine arts are standing mm. industry. Um, it used to be a much easier sell. Arts were mm. intrinsically valued in a way mm. that they are not anymore. Right. And so that made the, do- the case for support much easier, the case for ticket sales much easier. Mm. And right. over the last 30 years, especially, I would say, of course, that change and culture with the broadest definition of that has changed. Changes in consumer behavior, of course, have radically changed. Changes in marketing and trends have radically changed. And the industry has been very slow, Mm. uh, again, very generally speaking, but slow to catch up to that. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I I don't think those are unique to arts or maybe, you know, greater perhaps in the arts, but those are very, you know, common traits in, in kind of all nonprofits, any, any tips for organizations, arts or otherwise that are maybe interested in doing more content marketing. Cause maybe it sounds like, Oh, this is like another thing I have to do, or, you know, it sounds so difficult or like some, some helpful tips for people to get started. I think it, it's different work. It doesn't have to be new extra work. It's different work that can mm. replace old types of work. I give this advice a lot because you're right. That feeling of, oh my gosh, now I got to add one more thing. We are mm-hmm. all, we're all nonprofits. We are all very lean in mm-hmm. our staff structures. So yeah, I totally get that of, oh my gosh, I can't even do one more thing. Um, I, so I encourage that it's different work. So somebody already is writing an appeal letter. Somebody already is working on marketing for the organization. So this is just a shift in their approach to their role. So I offer that advice quite a bit. Mm. The other thing I always offer is, is permission to explore mm. these things that maybe, uh, maybe would be considered basic to somebody who has a deep understanding of whatever it is they're putting out there, whatever that piece of content is. And I think this is where this actually frees us up in our hiring strategy I am not a fan of only hiring people who know classical music very mm. well. I'm a fan of hiring people who are great at marketing mm-hmm. for, in this particular conversation, talking about content yeah. marketing. Right. So, and in some ways that really helps that person empathize with that audience member better because they don't have that deep level mm. of musical knowledge. And that helps in terms of empathy and, 
uh, avoiding the biases we mentioned earlier of just mm. not even being able to remember what it's like to not know things. Um, so that then really opens up our candidate pools and that starts yeah. then addressing the offstage talent question that I started yeah. off talking about. Right, right, so right. yeah, that's all great. of those things I would say. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, it's such a, um, a great thing for all nonprofits to be thinking about. You know, we often say you're in the content game, whether you like it or not, you know, you may not be producing content, which means you're just not doing well at the game, but like that, it, that kind of is the game, you know, that, that we have to play. Everyone's producing content, including brands and nonprofits. So it's a good reminder of uh, even in the arts, it's something that, that needs to be done. Well, thank you so much for, for taking so much time. Uh, I want to close with one last question. Um, how do you think we can grow, optimize and improve generosity? Retention. That's mm. a topic we have not talked about yet today. I am, That's a different podcast. It's a totally yeah, different episode. It is a totally different episode, but I, I will summarize by saying I've become very known for my dogmatic focus on retention. That is both mm. on the marketing side and on the donation side. And of course, a huge, a huge topic in general for fundraising of we've got to retain those donors. So to me, that's the best way to grow. We can mm. do acquisition all day long and there's a place for acquisition, but I think we tend to overweight that. So retention, I would say, is the best, best way to grow. I not agree more. Thank you for that answer. All right. Where can people find out more about you and your work? Again, I'm Aubrey Bergauer. That is my handle on every social media channel. So pick your favorite, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, uh, all there, Aubrey Bergauer. And then my website, AubreyBergauer.com. There's a link to all of my writing. I publish a lot of articles, uh, several of which we talked about on this podcast. So it's all, it's all there. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to send those out. Thank you so much for your time, Aubrey. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Generosity Freak Show brought to you by our friends at Virtuous, the only responsive fundraising platform designed to help nonprofit teams build better donor relationships with all of their donors. Be sure to subscribe to all future episodes at generosityfreakshow.com or search the Generosity Freak Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, other platforms that start with S, or wherever you get your pods. Now, the Generosity Freak Show is a production of Next After, where we combine the perpetual learning of a fundraising research lab, the practical application of a digital first agency, and the rigorous instruction of a training institute to decode what works in fundraising and make it accessible to as many organizations as possible. You can learn more about the work that we do and get free evidence-based fundraising resources at nextafter.com. Now, this show would not be possible without a few folks, including our mixologist, Jacob Hill, producers Riley Landenberger and Nathan Hill, and the chief visionary behind it all, Tim Kuchuriak. So thank you so much again for listening. And no matter where you are or what you're doing right now, I hope you're having a great day.